From high-atop Rocky Road in Moab, Utah, it's KZMU News. I'm Justin Higginbottom. This is your news for Friday, December 2nd. Those visiting public lands have become increasingly familiar with the website recreation.gov. That's used for things like reserving a camp spot or purchasing a backcountry permit. To visit Arches National Park in Moab, the site became more or less necessary for most during a pilot program requiring visitors to reserve a time slot for entering the park. That reservation was free, but included a non-refundable $2 processing fee. The fee isn't enough to ruffle the feathers of most visitors, especially if they assume that money goes to the park service. But the thing is, it doesn't. The varying processing fees at recreation.gov are charged by Booz Allen Hamilton. That's a billion-dollar beltway contractor known for securing lucrative spying contracts. It's the company that once employed Edward Snowden, and they won the 10-year, $182 million contract to manage recreation.gov in 2017. Consider Thomas Kotob's feathers ruffled. I would say clearly... The American people or visitors to national parks in this way are being terribly ripped off, paying an incredible amount of money for a service that's worth much less. Kotab is an electrical engineer living in Nevada, and one day he noticed a similar $2 processing fee to secure a timed entry reservation for Red Rock Canyon. That's a Bureau of Land Management area near Las Vegas. Finding out why his public lands were no longer free put him on a mission. The the devil is in the details, and once you try to get uh, into it, it's uh, an insane amount of work. Kotob doesn't have legal training, and English isn't his first language. He's an immigrant from Germany, by way of the former Czechoslovakia. But he began poring over the legalese of things like the 2005 Federal Lands Recreation Enhancement Act. That act authorizes the collection of fees for use of public lands. It says these third-party processing fees must be, quote, reasonable. And Kotob doesn't think the $2 to enter Red Rock Canyon is. In fact, he says the BLM has been able to manage the area for far less than what Booz Allen collects to just run the website. For the past decade, we have been able to manage this Red Rock National Conservation Area for a half a million uh, dollars every year, and they have collected about $3 million uh, in uh, fees, in these recreation fees every year. He collected 2,600 signatures protesting that fee, and then he sued the BLM in 2020. His main argument in that suit was that the BLM failed to provide a public notice for the fee. Matt Stoller, director of research at the Economic Liberties Project, sees these Booz Allen charges as part of ever-expanding junk fees in the country. Those are the often hidden charges that come with a purchase. For example, that annoying Ticketmaster service fee that appears at checkout. I think that you have a situation here where Booz Allen and the government are facilitating the charging of these junk fees to access, you know, what, what is our lands and water, our federal lands and waters. In October, the White House actually called on agencies to help reduce these hidden charges, which have grown over the years. Airline baggage and change fees totaled $5.97 billion in 2021. Stoller notes that sometimes people are charged a fee at recreation.gov, multiple times even, without being able to access an area. 
For example, to see the wave rock formation in Arizona, you need to enter a lottery that costs $9. Without any guarantee, you'll get a permit. And so you have people who have to enter the lottery multiple times. There's one group that, that spent $500 on lottery tickets, essentially, before they finally got a permit. So the $7 that they paid for the permit goes to the park, and the $500 they paid for the lottery went to Booz Allen. Kotob's lawsuit against the BLM was eventually thrown out after the agency made a public notice of the new fee. So far, the only thing it has led to was that for four months we didn't have to pay the fees. But he's not done. He currently has a complaint with the Interior Board of Land Appeals. Until then, he's begrudgingly paying $2 every time he enjoys the 13-mile scenic drive of Red Rock Canyon. November 29th marked another anniversary of the Sand Creek Massacre, the mass murder of at least 230 Cheyenne and Arapaho people by U.S. troops that took place in 1864. For Rocky Mountain Community Radio, KGNU's Shannon Young has more. It was the largest mass murder in Colorado history, but the story about what happened has been largely kept out of textbooks and classrooms. Earlier this month, Colorado History opened an exhibit on the Sand Creek Massacre, this time in consultation with affected tribes and the descendants of survivors. Last month, I spoke with Fred Mosqueda, an Arapaho elder from Oklahoma, who has been working as a tribal representative in public education efforts and in talks with officials. In our home state of Oklahoma, you know, the the governor there has uh, pretty well stopped any any um education there is some teachers who will teach the history of the shana rumpel tribe as it happened but you remember that the uh, in oklahoma we can't talk bad about the founding fathers so that kind of stops as far as but but we do provide education in the schools you know as far as they will let us to tell our history Colorado has opened their arms. They, they want to know. They want to hear the real story. And so Colorado is a lot more open to hearing us tell the true story of the history during the treaty years. I always call them the treaty years for the Shina Rapu tribe that was beginning in 1851 until 1867. They are more open. We can tell the stories that the schools and then like down in Littleton, they're going to build a brand new elementary school and they're going to name it Little Raven Elementary School. As you know, Little Raven was the um, was very, very instrumental in, in, in taking care of the not only the Rapos, but the Cheyennes during the treaty years. He signed every treaty um, with the United States government for the Cheyenne Rapo tribes. For KGNU, I'm Shannon Young. That story from Shannon Young at KGNU was shared with us via Rocky Mountain Community Radio, a network of public media stations in Colorado, Wyoming, Utah, and New Mexico, including KZMU. Conservation groups are pushing to keep federal protections for Bears Ears and Grand Staircase Escalante National Monuments in Utah. Alex Gonzalez at Public News Service has more. 
Boundaries of the two monuments were significantly reduced by President Donald Trump five years ago, but were restored by the Biden administration. Now conservation groups have filed a motion to intervene in two lawsuits, one headed by the state of Utah and the other headed by a number of plaintiffs, including the Blue Ribbon Coalition, an off-road vehicle advocacy group that challenged federal protection of these lands. One suit targets the Antiquities Act, saying the monument areas are too large and essentially deprive the state of resources. Steve Block at the Southern Utah Wilderness Alliance says groups like his are working alongside the Biden administration to ensure protection continues. That's the really high level, is that it comes down to who gets to call the shots on these lands. And then I think there are some interests who want to see these landscapes exploited for short-term financial gain instead of long-term preservation. Several tribal nations have also gotten involved. The Bears Ears National Monument was established by President Barack Obama. Grand Staircase Escalante was declared a national monument by President Bill Clinton in 1996. It's said to be home to many dinosaur fossils that can't be found anywhere else in the world. It's only been a couple of months since the lawsuits were filed, so Block says they're in the preliminary stages. He adds the lawyers representing the state want the U.S. Supreme Court to hear their case, where the court's conservative majority could possibly undo the Antiquities Act. It's a real black eye on the state that they would seek to undo the monument, seek to open these areas again to the type of extractive uses like oil and gas, like coal, like hard rock mining, like offered vehicle use. Block says he's disappointed the state isn't embracing the opportunity to protect these areas and work with tribes to safeguard land that is so iconic to Utah. For Public News Service, I'm Alex Gonzalez. And now the weekly newsreel, where we check in with reporters on their latest stories of the Moab area. A proposed buffer zone has locals talking about noise once again this week. Grand County's planning commissioners are considering a noise buffer between residential and commercial properties. It would require companies like OHV Outfitters and Dog Kennels to be located outside of the buffer, or invest in significant infrastructure to mitigate sound. The proposal alarmed some local business owners who showed up to a public hearing this week. Molly Marcello speaks with Doug McMurdo of the Times Independent about their coverage. I think this is a top story for a couple of reasons. You've got this um, ordinance. The county is trying to bring relief to residents who um, are overwhelmed, just the noise in town. So this public hearing was scheduled for Monday with the Grand County Planning Commission. And on the agenda was this discussion on a proposed uh, amendment to the Land Use Code, uh, Section 3, I believe it is. And um, the plan is to require businesses that make noise to put in some noise protection, a sound wall, a tree line, something to, uh, to buffer that noise between their business and the surrounding neighborhood, the abutting neighborhood. What kind of noise are we talking about? Well, that's a good question. And that's a question that um, several OHV uh, business owners showed up to, to ask uh, one of several questions. As far as anybody can tell, and, and I could be wrong, and if I am, um, I'll, I'll admit it when I find out. But as far as I know, this public hearing was just, this is the first time that this subject has even mm. been, been brought forth. Okay. Uh, and, and again, I, I'm not positive, but I think that's the case. So to start off with the public hearing, I thought was a little bit odd. So people show up on the day of the public hearing and they're upset based on uh, what Chair Emily Campbell said and Alyssa Martin, the planning director. A lot of those concerns were allayed. The main one was existing businesses are exempt. 
they're not going to make them do right. this. So I think that was a big relief for a lot of them. But there were still a lot of really good questions raised. Um, the, the civility of the meeting wasn't as always high as we would like. There, mm-hmm. was, there were some snarky comments made that I felt were unnecessary. Nonetheless, there were there were concerns right. raised that I thought had merit and, mm-hmm. and that were valid. New business will be subjected to this, but what happens when we move? Most of them rent the land that their business is set on. They might be made to move someday, and when they do, will they have to, to come up with the money to meet the sound barrier requirements? But it's not affixed to any business license or anything like okay. this. And there's just a buffer zone. It's basically everywhere on Highway 191 where these businesses operate, but also it's not limited to OHV businesses. It's uh, dog kennels were specifically mentioned. I guess mm. there's a dog kennel in town that okay. um, don't know what kind of noise could be coming from a dog kennel, but, um, <laughs> yeah. uh, but there's been complaints, apparently. So this is a proposed buffer zone, like you said, mainly along Highway 191, where businesses that essentially make noise would have to implement some sort of you know mitigation techniques. Correct. Okay. And um, one of the reasons that a lot of people who showed up to the meeting, you know, they might have felt blindsided by it because of the way that it was presented. Yeah, I, I, I get a very strong sense that the OHV community feels put upon. Mm. They feel targeted. Is the county going after them? I think the county's going after noise. I don't think the county has a per se problem with OHV operators. I, th- I think the, the biggest issue is these are elected officials and the people they represent are calling them every day saying, the noise, the noise, what are you going to do about the noise? Mm-hmm. And they've, they've struggled. They've been struggling with it for years. And I think they might continue until, right. until the rules change. As long as it's legal to drive an OHV, on a street, through a neighborhood, on your way to Cane mm-hmm. Creek or Sand Flats or wherever you're going, uh, this problem is going to persist. So there's that. So the Planning Commission has this public hearing. People show up to the public hearing, express their opinion on this proposed buffer zone. Did the Planning Commission indicate any next steps in this process? Well, that's that's a very good point. And, um, what they decided largely on the input of uh, Bob O'Brien, he's a Planning Commissioner, mm-hmm. he made the motion to uh, uh, postpone and not table, and that's an important distinction, and give them time to get information out to the business community, fine-tune some of these concerns, um, maybe make it a more comprehensive ordinance so, mm-hmm. so there's people can more easily understand it. And they'll they'll revisit it um, probably in their December meeting. I'm not quite sure what day that mm-hmm. is going to fall on. Yeah. Um, there was also a technical issue that created a huge problem, and I think it went a long way to um, making people think something shady was going on. And that was the fact that when they clicked on the agenda center to get the agenda mm-hmm. so they can look at it, print it out, whatever they want to do, the software that the county was using up until uh, a month ago, I suppose, would give you that old agenda. And mm-hmm. there were no new agendas mm-hmm. on it. And I personally had to call the county, walk me through how I find the yeah. the current agendas. People couldn't get to it unless uh, unless they knew the shortcut and how to get to the new one. So, Well, more information on the proposed noise buffer zone and this planning commission public hearing in this week's edition of the Times Independent. Anything else to say about it before we move on, Doug? 
Just one more editorial comment. I know I'm going to get in trouble for this, but local government, they can do a better job with outreach. I don't know what the postage would be to send a letter to all of those OHV business owners or any noise-making business in town, Mm -hmm. but a little heads up. Hey, we're going to be meeting. We're going to discuss this issue. This is how it's going to affect you. This is how it's not going to affect you. That would have gone a a long way to making Monday's meeting um, maybe more productive Mm -hmm. and um, Mm -hmm. uh, less contentious. Right. Like focusing on the substance of the actual proposal rather than the way right. it was advertised. Right. And, and truly engage with uh-huh. the, the local business community mm-hmm. and the community at large. I mean, right. we, we need that engagement. Thank you so much, Doug, for your coverage on this. And um, there's more in the TI. So where do you want to take us next? Well, how about some good news? Okay. All right. There is a plan for a 80-unit apartment complex We could absolutely use 80 new long-term housing options Mm. for locals. The best part of this, in my mind, is it's going to be built on the old Allen Memorial Hospital grounds on 400 North. I was out there photographing that to get a story, and um, it's it's derelict property, you know, boarded up. Yeah. And... um, it doesn't look like access to it is is prohibited. I mean, I, right. I walked right in and I didn't have to. Right. There's some graffiti, some trash, you know. Trash. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, it's just it is what it is. It's right. a derelict mm-hmm. building, long shuttered. How long? How many mm-hmm. years? I have no idea. But I believe um, you might call it unsightly. <laughs> <laughs> That's fair. So there's going to be new apartments there, and it looks like they were conditionally approved by the city planning commission back in May. So tell us about yes. that. Well, what what's going on is. They're going through the planning process, and they got conditional approval to move forward. It's been in the planning process for quite a while, and there's going to be six buildings. Uh, Some of them are two-story, and a couple of them are one-story, and they're anywhere from uh, studios, one-bedroom, and two-bedroom apartments. So that's pretty huge. Is this going to be for local residents? Is yes. It- These are not overnight rentals. There is a second part of that story, though. The casitas at the Hoodoo, they got also got conditional approval to move to the next phase of that project. Mm-hmm. And that's what the photograph is, that they're building those casitas. And those are for overnight rentals. Um before anybody gets upset, they were approved before the moratorium went into effect a couple of years ago. Right. So there's that. Okay. All right. So two things from the Moab City Planning Commission. One, um, apartments for local residents and two, um, some more overnight rentals. Yes. Doug McMurdo, editor at the Times Independent. Subscription info and more stories can be found at moabtimes.com. It took broad community support and the intervention of the governor, but world-famous Woody's Tavern has been saved. The bar will not lose its license over a violation this summer. Molly Marcello speaks with Allison Hartford of the Moab Sun News about their story. So in July, Woody's stayed closed for over 10 days without notifying the Utah Department of Alcoholic Beverage Services, which is a code violation that by the book results in an automatic forfeiture of the retail license. So Sherry Beck, who's the owner of Woody's, said that she didn't know that the rule was 10 days. She thought it was 14. And also the week of that closure, the bar faced a slew of issues that prevented it from opening anyway. The sewer line broke and they had no AC. So they kind of had to stay closed for the 12 days that they did. However, that 
is a code violation. And so in early November, Beck received a notice from Dabs that she broke that rule and would be expected at a public hearing um, at the Dabs commission meeting where she could possibly lose her bar license. So there was this huge outpouring of support. The community came together and created this petition on change.org that received over 1,700 signatures. Mm. Um, People were writing to the governor and to Tiffany Clayson, who's the director of Dabs. And so last week, Woody's received another notice from Dabs that because Beck provided public notice of the closure and didn't conceal it, and also because mm-hmm. of all the public support that they've been getting, the department chose to exercise its discretion, the letter said, and withdraw this penalty of getting the license taken away. Wow. Okay, so it took the outpouring of support. You mm-hmm. know, what about other state agencies? Did the governor get involved? Yeah, the governor did get involved. So according to the Salt Lake Tribune, Clay sent a letter to Dabs commissioners on November 22nd saying that Dabs was dropping its action against Woody's and she said dropping the case is quote in the best interest of the department and Utah residents whom we serve a decision that was made after much deliberation and in consultation with the governor Mm -hmm. Um, and in a statement Governor Spencer Cox said sometimes government needs a little common sense. You know, two weeks ago when, you know, there was first coverage of what was happening mm-hmm. um, at Woody's, one of the, you know, fears here is Dabs, this this board, has revoked licenses on much smaller, mm-hmm. you know, types of violations. Right. Do you have anything to say there? Yeah. Utah is one of 17 states that has this quota for bar licenses. And so there are very few to go around. So because of that, the commission will really quickly take away licenses and give those bar licenses to other establishments that it thinks are more deserving. Mm -hmm. And so when serious violations like this happen, usually Dabs will take the license away. I talked to Sherry Beck, the owner, about um, how she felt, and she said that in all her years of dealing with the Dabs Commission, she's never seen them walk away. And so she said she feels like it's very unreal that Woody's gets to keep its license. Mm -hmm. And she also wanted to extend her thanks to everyone who came out and supported um, Woody's. So did you get a sense from her, you know, in your interviews with her that she at one point really felt like she was going to lose Woody's? Yeah, definitely. I mean, initially when all this was happening, I think she definitely thought that it was possible she could lose her license because this wasn't like a minor violation Mm -hmm. and wasn't even a major violation. It was Mm -hmm. almost a step above that. Mm -hmm. Like it was an automatic license forfeiture. And Mm -hmm. so she feels super thankful that she gets to survive. Well, thank you for the coverage on it. It's it's very notable how much support, like you were saying, 1,700 signatures and like kind of from a cross section of the community as yeah. well. Well, where do you want to take us next? So I talked to Desiree Miller, who is the owner of the Adobe Garden Apothecary because she's reimagining the space and wants to make it more of a community hub. Nice. So the the Adobe Garden Apothecary, remind us where it is in town. It's along 4th East Street next to Legends Barbershop. Um, And it's kind of in this little tucked away zone. And so when you go there, you see the barbershop and then you see this like gate into this courtyard and the courtyard kind of leads into the apothecary. And so it's a little bit tucked away. So they're reimagining the space. What is it going to look like? The apothecary right now is kind of this like bulk spices, herb and tea storefront um, that carries these handmade goods. Um, And Desiree Miller is really passionate about herbs and 
in medicines and so she makes these bulk teas and makes new blends and things like that and so she's been using the apothecary to sell these like bulk goods but over the summer she kind of got to experiment with making like ready-made items like if you saw the adobe garden apothecary at arts and ag um, or at a couple of the festivals around town it they were always selling like lemonade and cookies and people really, really enjoyed that. And so Desiree said she wants to use kind of that momentum and she sees that need in the community for a space where people could just sit down and drink like custom made tea blends Mm. made by her and snack on these healthy treats. And so the apothecary is kind of slowly turning into more of like a tea shop vibe where people could go and sit down and talk with Desiree because it is an apothecary. So um, Mm. she does find herself like people will come in and be like, you know, I'm feeling I have like some pain in my back or I'm feeling lovesick and she will make like a custom tea blend. And now you'll be able to sit down and drink the tea and gather with friends. All right. So it's it's kind of like become on almost on its own a community gathering space. Right. And now she's kind of formalizing, yeah. you know, that sort of aspect of her her business. Yeah. Yeah. So if you go to the apothecary now, it's a little bit um, under construction um, as she's kind of reimagining this space and then she's expecting that they'll close for a little bit in January but then reopen this winter as this like new shop and I know it's also an important gathering space because there's um, the Moab Pride Library is there. So. Right. Desiree Miller is one of the only queer black woman um, business owners in the town. And so she said, you know, the apothecary has always been and will always be a very welcoming and safe space. Anything else to say about the transformation of the Adobe Garden apothecary? So she said she feels like Adobe Garden can offer a really unique experience. Um, while it is in town, it it's in this little tucked away oasis. And so it's really easy to get away from the hustle and bustle there. And there's more in the Moabs and News. You wrote about some upcoming events. Tell us about one of them. So one of the Moab community's favorite winter events is returning for the season. It's Science Moab on Tap, which is a lecture series hosted by Science Moab that features scientists doing research in the Moab area. And this year there will be three talks, um, one each in December, January, and February. Where are they happening this year? So this year it's happening at Woody's. Okay. Um, last year was at Spitfire, but this year it's back at Woody's and it'll be um, on Wednesdays in those months and the talk runs for an hour. Like you said, this is one of locals' favorite events. These are usually packed um, yeah. and there's always some interesting speakers. Yeah. So this year's lineup is Josh Lively, Brooke Osborne, and Riley Finnegan. So Josh Lively will kick off this year's series on Wednesday, December 7th with a talk titled a river with big paddles a freshwater sea turtle from the cretaceous of southern utah Mm. and so lively is a curator of paleontology at the utah state university eastern prehistoric museum in price and he specializes in vertebrates from the cretaceous period with an emphasis on marine lizards and freshwater turtles and so he'll really dive into like what this area looked like in deep geologic time and kind of how life has evolved since then so i talked to christina young who's the founder of Science Moab, and she said for the on tap events, she always tries to pick scientists who can talk like normal people and can deliver information in understandable and digestible and even fun ways. And so, this is really supposed to be like a fun and very accessible event. 
Allison Hartford, staff reporter at the Moab Sun News. Subscription info and more stories can be found at moabsunnews.com. That's it for the weekly newsreel where we check in with reporters on their latest stories of the Moab area. You can find the pieces that were mentioned today in the show notes at our website, kzmu.org, or wherever you listen to the KZMU News Podcast. As always, thanks for tuning in and supporting KZMU, community-powered radio.